You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Distributed denial of service attacks against Lithuania. The dark crystal rat is described. Iranian steel mill suspends production due to cyber attack. Bumblebee rising. CISA adds to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. Music pirate sites are brought down by U.S. and Brazilian authorities. Joe Kerrigan looks at Apple's private access tokens. Mr. Security Answer Person John Pescatori drops some S-bombs. And where do Russian intelligence officers go after they've been PNG'd? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 28, 2022. Lithuania has said that the distributed denial-of-service attacks it's sustaining probably originate with Russia, Security Week reports. According to CNN, the nominally hacktivist outfit Killnet has now claimed responsibility. Lithuania's National Cybersecurity Center said it is highly probable that such or even more intense attacks will continue into the coming days, especially against the communications, energy, and financial sectors. Lithuania is attracting Russian attention because of its refusal to allow prohibited goods to be shipped over its rail lines to Russia's non-contiguous region of Kaliningrad, an enclave surrounded by Lithuanian and Polish territory. Flashpoint, which has been following Kilnet and related pro-Russian chatter, finds that chatter to be notably aggressive. They say, Flashpoint has identified chatter on various pro-Russian telegram channels claiming that the current standoff between Russia and Lithuania could escalate to a full-fledged military confrontation, although no evidence of physical violence is yet to take place between Russia and Lithuania as of this publishing. CERT-UA earlier this month warned that Windows systems in Ukraine were under attack by Russian operators deploying the Dark Crystal Rat. Fortinet's Fortigard Labs yesterday issued a description of how DC Rat is being used, While the precise infection vector is unknown, it's believed to be a form of phishing. The payload is carried in malicious macros the victim is induced to run. The typical use to which DC-RAT is put has been data theft, but it also establishes persistence in victim systems and can be used to stage a broad range of other attacks. The report concludes, The RAT can be customized to the attacker's needs by adding plugins. As the RAT primarily focuses on data exfiltration, 
Stolen data will likely be used as a stepping stone for further activities against affected organizations. It can also lead to further damage, such as a threat actor maintaining persistence in the long term, stealing personally identifiable information and confidential data. Targets of this attack are likely in Ukraine. Having a foothold in the compromised Ukrainian organization goes a long way toward inflicting long-term and unthinkable damage due to the nature of this malware. A cyber attack has struck one of Iran's major steel companies on Monday, forcing it to halt production, Security Week reports. The attack struck the state-owned Khuzestan Steel Company and two other major steel producers. An anonymous hacking group, Gonjeske Durande, which is predatory sparrow in the Jerusalem Post's translation, has claimed responsibility for the attack, saying that it was done to target the aggression of the Islamic Republic. The group shared alleged closed-circuit footage from the Khuzestan Steel Company, in which a piece of heavy machinery on a steel billet production line malfunctioned and caused a fire. CEO of Khuzestan Steel, Amin Ebrahimi, said nothing of the footage and claimed the attack was thwarted, saying, Fortunately, with time and awareness, the attack was unsuccessful, and noting that everything should return to normal by the end of Monday. Neither of the other steel producers targeted in the attack noted damage or production issues. Predatory Sparrow has been heard from before, CyberScoop observes, notably in 2021's wiper attacks against Iran's rail system, and Checkpoint has obtained samples from the most recent incident that link it to the earlier attack. Relatively little is known about the group, beyond, that is, their self-presentation as hacktivists opposed to the Islamic Republic. The Symantec Threat Hunter team, part of Broadcom Software, this morning released a report on the Bumblebee loader. The researchers characterize it as a recently developed malware loader and say that it has quickly become a key component in a wide range of cybercrime attacks and appears to have replaced a number of older loaders, which suggests that it is the work of established actors and that the transition to Bumblebee was pre-planned. The rapidity with which Bumblebee has achieved a central position in criminal-to-criminal markets indicates not only the C2C market's relative efficiency, but the extent to which it's come to resemble the functioning of legitimate markets. The Symantec ThreatHunter team concludes... Bumblebee's links to a number of high-profile ransomware operations suggest that it is now at the epicenter of the cybercrime ecosystem. Any organization that discovers a Bumblebee infection on its network should treat this incident with high priority, since it could be the pathway to several dangerous ransomware threats. Their study includes a long set of indicators of compromise. CISA yesterday added eight vulnerabilities to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. Five of the issues are with Apple products. The other three affect Google Chromium, Red Hat, and Mitel. Federal civilian executive branch agencies falling under Binding Operational Directive 22-01, reducing the significant risk of known exploited vulnerabilities, must address the eight issues by July 18, 2022. In each case, CISA tells its charges to apply updates per vendor instructions. While the private sector in the U.S. and elsewhere, of course, isn't bound by BOD 22-01, it's prudent for all organizations to take a close look and consider remediating these vulnerabilities. Full details are available in the catalog.
U.S. and Brazilian authorities have seized some 272 websites that had been used to illegally download copyrighted music. The domains of six of the pirate sites were in the U.S., but the vast majority, 266 of them, were Brazilian domains. Brazilian police collared six suspects in 30 search-and-seizure raids. And finally, if you're a Russian spy, and to speak more precisely, an intelligence officer, where'd you rather work? In the GRU's aquarium back home, for example, or maybe someplace nice, like Geneva? We're just spitballing here, but we're guessing that Geneva wins, hands down. Anywho, the AP reports that the Swiss Federal Intelligence Service, in the annual report it issued yesterday, has reached a similar conclusion— Russia's war against Ukraine has resulted in a number of Russian intelligence officers, officers operating under diplomatic cover, finding themselves expelled from their stations in Western countries. The Federal Intelligence Service urges those countries, and especially its own government, to take seriously the possibility that Russia would try to redeploy such operators against other Western targets. Not only is it sound counterintelligence practice to keep the bad guys out, But, the report observes, doing so could help ensure that Russian intelligence capabilities will be weakened with lasting effect. So read and heed Western counterintelligence operators, and good hunting. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Mr. G. 
sociology answer person mr sociology answer person This is John Pescatori, and welcome to Ask Mr. Security Answer Person. Short drill downs into timely security issues with a lot of hype busting. Here's the question that came in for today. Hey, Mr. Security Answer Person, in one of your earlier segments, when asked about zero trust, you pointed out it was overhyped, saying it was mentioned 11 times in President Biden's 2021 Cybersecurity Executive Order. Well, there was another term mentioned 11 times in that executive order, Software Bill of Materials, or SBOM. My security team recently raised that as a critical initiative for us in software supply chain security, but our procurement and software folks say, no way, not feasible. What's the bottom line here? Okay, here's the deal. Your security team is definitely right because events from Heartbleed to Log4j have hammered home the need for something like SBOM to solve a serious security problem. The procurement and app dev folks are looking at SBOM as something they don't need and something that would just cause them more work. These segments are too short to fully explain SBOM, but here's a quick background. You can do an internet search on SBOMorama, I'm not kidding, if you want to dig in in detail. In the old days, software applications were monolithic. Your dev team or a software vendor wrote and compiled every line of code into one big old executable. It was kind of like a restaurant that only serves steaks. You knew you were getting beef and maybe a mysterious sprig of parsley. But with the rise of open source code and modern modular software development methodologies, developers learned that they could find pieces of code or even entire libraries that they could reuse for boring common functions, and they could focus on the fun parts of the application. It was kind of like the steak restaurant changed to being a salad bar. Your meal now had dozens of ingredients for many suppliers, just as modern applications often contain dozens of external code segments or libraries. SBOM is kind of like one of those nutrition facts panels on the packaged food, put on the side of the salad bar for each item. You could tell who provided those deviled eggs and maybe even how old they were. It would tell you if there'd been any E. coli recalls on any of the lettuces. No help if you don't read them, but for those who care, good information. We need this for supply chain security reasons. But think of all the work it would take for every salad bar to post those salad bar bills of materials and keep them accurate and up to date. That is where much of the pushback on SBOM comes from. This is critical because for a bill of materials to be useful, it must document the ground truth of a piece of software and always be available for the latest release as well as all past releases, which seems like a lot of work to commercial and open source developers who often don't use secure development methodologies, which essentially already require that SBOM-like information be captured. But there's a bigger issue. Most enterprises don't have accurate software inventories of the high-level software and apps they actually have in use. They're essentially lacking a meta SBOM, if you will. It's not uncommon for a vulnerability scan to show the configuration management database is only 80% complete. If the top of the supply chain, your organization, has rogue apps running, you will always have blind spots throughout the entire supply chain. This brings us back to good old basic security hygiene. Sort of good news is that while there's a lot of forward movement around SBOM standards and implementations, it is unlikely to be ready for a prime time before 2024. So take advantage of the hype today and pull on SBOM now to first raise your level of basic security hygiene around configuration management and software inventory, as well as addressing the issues of in-house development using open source apps and libraries in production software and internal tools. Then begin your lobbying of the software and procurement organizations to begin requiring SBOM compliance from all software and cloud app vendors to be ready when SBOM is more fully baked. 
And by the way, practice saying S-bomb three times fast before doing any management briefings on it to avoid accidentally using a nearly identically sounding term that may get you some odd looks. Thanks for listening. I'm John Pescatore, Mr. Security Answer Person. Security Answer Person. Mr. Security Answer Person with John Pescatori airs the last Tuesday of each month right here on the CyberWire. Send your questions for Mr. Security Answer Person to questions at thecyberwire.com. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. You know, over on Hacking Humans, we talk a lot about authentication. Yes. Uh, and one of the ways that uh, we get authenticated online or at least prove our humanity yes. is through the use of CAPTCHAs. CAPTCHAs. I'm going to quiz you here. Any idea what CAPTCHA stands for? Actually, uh, if you'd asked me this before I read this article, I'd have said nope. <laughs> but uh, here's what CAPTCHA stands for. Completely automated public Turing, and then test to tell, computers and humans apart. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a problem with this right off the bat, okay. the idea of a CAPTCHA. First off, they suck. Everybody agrees. CAPTCHAs are awful. Yeah. Uh, but a completely automated public Turing test, a, a Turing test is something that tests an AI to see whether it's a good enough AI. Yeah. And if you can't tell the difference between an AI and a human— the AI passes the test. Right. So a CAPTCHA is, seems to me like it's designed to fail if it's a Turing test. It's an upside down. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, yeah. a backwards implementation of it. And and we've seen all kinds of AI coming after these CAPTCHAs. Uh, sure. And, and, and you know, there's even the old robot clicking the button that says, I'm not a robot. Yeah. You've seen that? That's pretty funny. Well, this article is from Apple Insider. It's written by Andrew Orr. And uh, it's about uh, some stuff that came out of Apple's recently um, developer conference. Right. There's a lot uh, to cover here. They're talking about private access tokens hoping to replace CAPTCHAs. What's going on here, So the the problem of validating that you're dealing with a human is a real problem on the web because there are tons of automated ways to go through – a, a web interface and just stuff credentials or, or do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. So CAPTCHAs are the best option we have right now until this thing came out from Apple. Here's how it works. First, this is something that's transparent to the user. It's So it's low friction. Yeah. Uh, and second, this is done in addition to existing authentication methods. Okay. So you'll still have like passwords and usernames and even multi-factor authentication, but now you'll also have this private access token or this PAT. 
Okay. So the protocol relies on a trusted third party. And of course, in this case, because it's Apple doing it, they're going to say it's us. Okay. So when the web server requests a pet, the client device will contact an attestation server. Okay. To attest that this is a real person. Mm-hmm. Right? The Apple implementation uses a, the trusted enclave, right? The the keys and certificates stored in there. Yeah. Uh, and some state detection that's used on the hardware to detect uh, if this is a valid request. Mm. And then it issues a token that it signs. Okay. Right? That token is then sent back to the web server, which validates Apple's signature on the uh, on the token with one of their public keys. Okay. And then the user is granted access. Hmm. Okay. So it's essentially just Apple saying, yep, we think this is a real person. Right. And we've gone through our workflow to do it. Hmm. So in other words, I, I, law, I access my mobile device with, say, Face ID or Touch ID. Correct. Apple says, hey, that's good enough for us. We're, we're convinced this is a real human. So when this web uh, thing checks in with Apple's technology, it says, yep, we've checked in on this person. We think it's real. Go for it. Right. Okay. But the questions that aren't answered are, how did you check into it? Yeah. Go, nope. Trust us. <laughs> right. And that okay. actually, that's good because the next point here is that there's a, a good bit of privacy design in this protocol. Hmm. The web server only gets the signed token, the destination URL, and the IP address of the device, which it always needs, right? Yeah. So the only thing you're sending to the web, web server is the token. Now, the article breaks this down into a little more nuanced explanation where they talk about service providers like Cloudflare getting the token and then passing the URL off. Yeah. But this could all be done by just a single... Uh, website, okay. you know, a web server. There's no reason to have a third party in there. You could have a third party in there. I mean, there may be valid business reasons, but for this protocol, there's no. it's not necessary. Hmm. The attestation server only gets the data about the device necessary to generate a token, hmm. right? So mm-hmm. Apple never sees what website you're going to. All they see is that you're requesting one of these tokens. I see. And they don't care where you're going, mm-hmm. right? It's not That's not their business. And they do a good—I I would trust Apple. Apple tends to be pretty good with privacy and security. Yeah. So one of the features of the protocol is that each token is unique. And this does two things. First, of course, it prevents a replay attack, right? right Which is right. a cryptographic attack where bad guys just send the same information over and over again. And if you're not equipped to deal with a replay attack, if your protocol doesn't have that— in you know that resilience bit built in there, it's susceptible to that, and it's really easy to defeat your protocol. Okay. Uh, so each one's unique to prevent that from happening. Then, since every token must be generated by the attestation server, mm-hmm. the server that attests, it provides an opportunity to rate limit the requests. Hmm. Right. So now, uh, a malicious actor with a click farm can't send in a hundred requests a second. Right. I see. The, the attestation server goes, no, 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 we're not issuing tokens for you, mm. right? And that's the hope of how this works. I see. All right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty well-designed protocol and, and pretty good. Uh, web servers access through Safari and WebKit, which is the Apple web engine, right. will work automatically with PATS. Other devices may not recognize the token process, so Apple cautions developers to make sure that authentication doesn't block the main web page. Uh, so, in other words, if you can't get a pat, don't shut it down. Yeah. Don't shut down the transaction. Maybe the fall back to a capture or right. something Right, fall like back that. to a capture. Okay. Uh, so, one of my concerns when I'm reading this is that, is this something that Apple is going to keep to themselves as intellectual property and try to make privacy more of a differentiator in the marketplace for them? Hmm. Right? Uh, 
It seems no. The company is actually working to make private access tokens a web standard, which is nice, uh, according to this article. Uh, But there is no mention of tokens working with Android or Windows, probably because they're not out there yet. But Mm -hmm. if everybody got on board with the standard, uh, or if if enough people got on board with the standard and the the Internet Engineering Task Force adopted it as a standard, then everybody could do it. And there's no reason why why Google or Windows or anybody else could do it. Could other uh, organizations spin up their own attestation servers? Sure, theoretically. Sure. Yeah. If if it's an open standard, absolutely. Yeah. I have two concerns with this protocol. Okay. Okay. And the first one is how you exploit it, and you exploit it very similarly to the way you exploit the root certificate authorities. Hmm. You create a malicious attestation server mm. that lets you go ahead and. Uh, start issuing these things. Now that's kind of easy to mitigate, right? Because you just say to you, you, as the as the developer of a um of a of a website or or of of service like Cloudflare, you say, "Well, I'm not going I, I don't know who that is, so I'm not going to a- accept attestations from them or tokens from them." <laughs> right. We're only going to right. ex- accept attestations from servers that have been attested to. <laughs> right. The servers that we trust, it's, it's, right? It's attestation all the way down, Joe. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it, it, it comes to the same problem that the the root certificate authorities come to, right? right? Who do you trust? Yeah. That's, that's the same problem. Uh, the other concern I have is that this might lead to a less open web mm. because of that. A uh, couple, couple mitigations for that. One, you can always fall back to still using a CAPTCHA. Right. Right. Or... You could have a uh, an open foundation like the Mozilla Foundation or the Electronic Frontier Foundation become an attestation provider or a token provider, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if that's who you use, let's say you you run Linux, right? And yeah. So you don't have a large company behind you like Apple or Microsoft or Google that develops your operating system. It's an open source operating system. Well, okay, I'm going to use Mozilla's private access token service mm-hmm. uh, if, if Mozilla has enough money and funding to set one up or the EFF has one. Right. But it, it can be done. Yeah. It can be done. I like I like this protocol. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it. All right. Well, good to know. Thanks for explaining it to us. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining it's us. It's my pleasure. That's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.